Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, December 9th, 2013. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And it's the week of the national semifinals or the week of the all-region team being announced, depending, I guess, on uh, whether you're one of the four or one of the 241. Uh, and the uh, the four got there in uh, some pretty exciting fashion, at least some of them, especially Mount Union. Uh, scores 62, gives up 59 in a wild, wild national quarterfinal game in which they outlasted Wesley after they scored the first 31 points and then had to hold on down the stretch. Uh, Wisconsin Whitewater is back in the national semifinals. So is Mary Harden Baylor. And uh, North Central making its first trip to the round of four. I don't think we call it that, but we could uh, after defeating Wesley. But Keith, the the game that was uh, that had the stage to itself for an hour had the stage to itself for the most boring part of the game, and then uh, the thrilling finish in which uh, I think a th- combined thirty nine points were scored in the fourth quarter, and uh, Wesley unable to pull it out. Mountain Union holds on to win sixty two fifty nine. What a crazy game that was! Yeah, and I think it wasn't just crazy. If you look at it, you know, if you just look at the box score and you say, all right, well sixty two fifty nine must have been a shootout from start to finish. It was nothing like that at all. If you watch the the first half of this game, not only was it 31 nothing at, at the end of the first quarter, but it was uh, 48-20 at halftime. And so e- even, I think, going into the third quarter, you think Mountain Union is cruising in this thing. And, and while at, there was a point in the game uh, in, in the second quarter where, you know, you could tell at least Wesley wasn't going to lay down and, and, and just mail it in and, because they fell down 31-0, I don't know that it became a really, really exciting game until uh, Joe Callahan and, and Steve Kadosu and those guys started going wild in the third and fourth quarters. Keith, uh, you mentioned 48-20 at the half. Uh, my final score prediction was 45-21. So if, if we hadn't played those final 30 minutes, I'd be feeling pretty good. Uh, but, you know, the thing that the thing that impressed me the most was that, um, you know, Wesley took a couple hits. You know, they uh, had a, a pick six, first play from scrimmage for, uh, for Mountain Union. They run it, um, you know, a significant amount of yards. Where are we? 67 yards. Okay, for a touchdown. Um, punt return for a TD, pick six, all in the first quarter. Um, and, and Joe Callahan's looking not particularly good, and they're down 31 nothing, and they don't mail it in. How many teams have we seen go down by much less than that in the first quarter at Mountain Union and mail it in the rest of the way? Sure. I mean, you see all that happen. You think they're done. This team was was not that good to begin with. They've played, uh, you know, they, above their heads, and they're lucky to be here. You know, at, at that point, I think I was personally thinking this is going to be like that sixty six zero Bridgewater Mount Union game, yeah. which was, I believe, a semifinal, not a quarterfinal. <clears throat> right. But it was it was a matchup of two teams that came in uh, pretty highly touted, and and Mount Union just blew Bridgewater off the field that year. And it wasn't even that that Bridgewater team was bad. You know, I think they just got caught. Uh, you know, a couple things went wrong for them early in the game, and they, and they tried to stick with a scheme that wasn't working, and Mountain Union just poured it on. And, and on Saturday against Wesley, there was definitely some of that going on in terms of Mountain Union pouring it on. Uh, the, the first play from scrimmage was just a B.J. Mitchell, uh, it looked like a toss sweep or some, you know, it was an outside run. And it didn't wasn't anything special that he did. He just took the ball outside and was running fast as he normally does. A um, couple Wesley guys missed tackles, and then he was gone. The second time, uh, you know, Wesley gets the ball. Uh, Wesley gives the ball right back to Mount Union. Sherman Wilkinson just runs uh, a route straight up the middle of the field, wide open touchdown, and uh, it, it it went like that. And then Mount Union gets the onside kick, 
and you feel like Mountain yeah. was really pouring it on. There was a Joe Callahan through a, a out route. He kind of just hesitated, pumped it, pump fake, not pump fake, but he, he double pumped a little bit and threw it out really late. Trey Jones stepped in front of it, took that back, and it's thirty-one-zero. And it, it it was definitely a case where you just think Mountain Union is going to run away with this thing, and and that didn't happen at all. All credit to to Wesley for that because uh, they they you know you're you're at Mountain Union. Uh, that's the team that everybody thinks is going to win the game to begin with. When the you know the defending national champion, you're on the road, and, and there's no reason to believe they come back from that point. And and they really uh, were able to start getting a, little, a few things going in the passing game. Um, and it wasn't just trying to you know huck it down the field. They were uh, they were using over the middle routes. They got the ball out of the backfield to Jamar Baynard. And suddenly, once they got back in the game, I, fe- I felt like the the folks in the Lions felt like. Um, Wesley started to get rolling and they started to seize the momentum a little bit in the second half. And we could spend probably 10 minutes just talking blow by blow of the second half, but skipping ahead into the fourth quarter for a second, uh, you know, Mountain Union goes up uh, 55-41. Wesley drives all the way down the field and then Callahan throws a pick that uh, Mountain Union returns out to the one yard line with uh, about six minutes to go in the game. Uh, So they give up the ball down by 14 with six minutes to go. That's a spot where you could almost um, call that game over. And then, uh, you know, on the first play from scrimmage, Mountain Union gets tackled in the end zone. So there's a safety leads cut to 12. And then the game gets a little crazy from there, obviously because of the, uh, because of the odd number Um, Mountain Union uh, gets the ball back after a, uh, you know, on a, on a short drive, they go up by 19 with 351 to go. And you could think that Wesley was done there too. But then uh, Callahan throws a 81-yard pass to Bryce Shade and a two-point conversion because, you know, they're down by 19. Uh, two-point conversion makes it uh, 62-51. Then they onside kick, get it back. Uh, Steve Caduso takes a, a 56-yard pass from Callahan with uh, uh, with a buck 30 to go and a two-point conversion makes it 62-59. And all of a sudden, we're up to a uh, we're up to an onside kick again for Wesley with a chance to just have to kick a field goal to tie the game. Yeah, and and obviously Mountain Union recovered that onside kick, and so there was there was no uh, last second dramatics at the point where the game was was sixty two fifty nine. Pat, but you you mentioned a, a couple of you know, interesting things, I guess, in the sense that there was that point in the game where um, Mountain Union is up sixty two forty three, and and felt like they'd taken Wesley's best shot, and they responded, and Wesley got right back in it quickly with two two play drives. And uh, it yeah. took, you know, 50 seconds to get down the field. Wesley got the ball back and, and scored again in 26 seconds. And so at the point where they kicked the onside kick, there's still 90 seconds left in the game. And had they they gotten that, that onside kick, certainly there would have been a chance for them to line up, um, you, know, you know, potentially get in field goal range and tie the game or, or go deep again and, uh, and win the game. And, and if you're Mountain Union, you know, you know, I think you have to be encouraged and concerned about the way the second half went. There's one school of thought you can look at it and say, well, they uh, they got ahead by so much they they sort of dialed it back and they were just trying to get out of there with a win. And I think I think some of the third quarter play calling probably supports that theory. But also too, I I just don't know how you give up an 81 yard touchdown pass, a 56 yard touchdown pass uh, late in the game when uh, when you're you know you're just trying to protect the lead. I mean, I, I think part of that you have to give credit to Wesley. For, uh, for being able to hang in this thing. And, and every time Mount Union should have put Wesley away, Wesley answered. 
And by the same token, every time out, Union needed a big drive. And, and that may be the thing we overlook here is that every, every time out, Union needed a big drive. Uh, they were able to come up with one, whether it was uh, Kevin Burke throwing a pass uh, to Sherman Wilkinson or, or, or him leading a drive where they ran the ball down the field and were able to punch it in. Mount Union did you know, answer when they needed to answer, too. And I think that's probably just as important to remember that even though they went into the half with 48 points, um, the two touchdowns they did score in the second half ended up being two very needed touchdowns. Uh, the the uh, addition of Wilkinson into the regular receiver rotation for Mountain Union obviously has been a big deal for them. He's been a, a big playmaker and he's a vertical threat. Um, on the on the Wesley side, you know, obviously you and I just saw Wesley play in the second round against Ithaca. Um, you know, Caduso is a guy who's a, a vertical threat that maybe I don't know if uh, other teams still remaining in the playoffs have. They he and uh, obviously Shade had a a big uh, touchdown catch and run for them as well uh, in that late in that game. Um, you know, those two give them uh, gave Mount Union a heck of a lot of trouble. Obviously, uh, in the secondary, he they were they were getting behind those guys pretty easily for those uh, for those two big scores in the fourth quarter. Sure, and and you know, I think Caduso is more of a, he's a any kind of threat that he's a guy who can they can give him to to underneath uh, a crossing route. They can give to him on screens. You know, the big play he had in the first half of that game was he caught a sort of a drag and uh, used the umpire to screen the, the free safety. And then once he, he broke down the sideline, he eluded a couple of Mountain Union guys and, and turned that into a big play. And that was one of the plays that helped uh, Wesley get back into the game. But, yeah, I, I think for Wesley, you know, you mentioned Bryce Shade. I think he's going to be really good. And I think Jamar Baynard, their, uh, their running back, who's uh, just a freshman. He only had nine carries and 18 yards at Mountain Union. But he, uh, he had a couple of uh, – he had seven catches for 74 yards and three touchdowns. I think Wesley's got a lot to look forward to with those two guys offensively. Callahan uh, is not a senior, and we should probably talk about his day at some point. Yeah. His final numbers, obviously, through the roof, but but through the roof, good and bad, because he had the eight touchdown passes and the 633 yards, but also the four interceptions. Yeah, and a, a couple of those, obviously, early when uh, Mountain Union built up that big lead. But uh, 633 yards, if I remember seeing the uh, – the the news releases that flashed past me on Saturday uh, is a uh, a Division three playoff record uh, eight touchdowns uh, if I understand uh, Jim Ballard correctly and he was calling uh, color on the um, on the Mountain Union broadcast that may tie a uh, playoff record but you know I did not go back and check the record book to see if a to make sure he actually threw eight touchdown passes against St John's in that. Uh, I think fairly infamous 1993 semifinal, or if uh, somebody had managed to surpass that sense, not that I could think of anybody who'd thrown nine, but I just want to say I hadn't checked that one. Um, so it, I think the interesting thing was, is that uh, especially in that fourth quarter, Keith um, Callahan, where he had uh, it, it looked a little bit shaky early, he just looked really calm and poised and scary to think that that guy's only a sophomore. And if he was able to play like that for three quarters against Mountain Union, what he might be able to do the next couple of years. Well, the more impressive thing to me, too, is not just that he's able to do that, but that he's able to do that in a game where he started out throwing three interceptions in the first half, one that went back for a touchdown, and, uh, and when his, with his team down 31 to nothing. I suppose you could make the argument that at that point you play loose, you have nothing to lose. But I thought it was evident just being able to watch that game, the way Wesley came out in the third quarter. You, you saw uh, the, the team rally at, at um, 
midfield and Sustin Capapula is giving them the, the big speech like, let's go, we can really come back and win this game. And at that point, they're down by 28. You mentioned how Callahan played in the second half. I mean, that's got to be really encouraging for for Wesley um, just to know that their their guys are built that way. And I think, you you, you know, you, you take away from this thing. If you're going to go out of the tournament, that's the way you want to go out. You want to go out. Uh, you know, scoring as many points as you can and, and making it certainly as hard as possible for the uh, for the defending national champion to to move on to the quarterfinal round. Mountain Union hosts. Yep, Mountain Union hosts North Central next Saturday in the semifinals, a game that kicks off at noon Eastern. I saw North Central play this week. We'll talk a little bit later. I'll tell you how I feel about uh, how North Central might compare to Mountain Union uh, compared to the way that uh, Wesley matched up with Mountain Union this past week. Uh, the other uh, most interesting quarterfinal, I guess, is the uh, the battle of the uh, West Region Purple teams. No, yeah, that's not specific enough. Uh, the battle between uh, Whitewater and Linfield, a game, Keith, in which Linfield jumped out to a 17 nothing lead. And, you know, frankly, I felt at, at that point like I wasn't really sure, uh, you know, what was happening with Whitewater. And then Whitewater's defense just kind of poured it on. Whitewater's offense came alive. Uh, you know, the Whitewater defense got to Josh Yoder, sacked him eight times, and Whitewater scored the final 28 points to win 28-17. You mentioned those eight sacks, Pat. Seven of those sacks were in the second half, and Linfield had uh, more than 300 yards of offense in the first half, had just about everything going right, and Whitewater, for, for their part, they couldn't get anything going, and, and part of the reason uh, Linfield got such a big lead is that White, Whitewater was was uncharacteristically uh, turned the ball over. They, they had not turned it over pretty much all season. Matt Brent only has one interception coming into the game. Whitewater only had six lost fumbles on the season, and that's one of the reasons why they're undefeated and still playing because they only had seven turnovers in 12 games uh, up until Sunday. They had a, uh, After Linfield got on the board, the, the big turnover was, uh, was a fumble on the kickoff by Marcus McLinn, and uh, that helped Linfield build a 10-0 lead. And the way Whitewater's built the season, they were built pretty much by their, their defense keeping the other team down and and the 17 points uh when linfield hit 17 in that game that was a season high nobody hit 17 on uh, on whitewater all season so they needed their offense to dig deep in the second half and bail them out and uh once the offense got rolling a little bit they got it to 17 14 by the half and and took the lead in the third quarter that's when the defense was able to pour it on and, and you have to give credit to, to both sides of the ball uh, on white on whitewater because they needed to rally they needed to put some points on the board and then they needed to keep linfield off the board and linfield came in as the number one scoring offense in the country yeah barrett came into the game with one interception and he left it with one interception as well uh he was 26 to 36 passing for tds 275 yards and keith the whitewater run game which has been you know a, a uh a, to say that the whitewater run game has been a strength for them over the past decade is just uh defies all uh all understatement there uh but uh you know they uh they didn't run the ball particularly well on saturday uh, only 103 yards on 26 carries jordan ratliff 12 for 94 and 49 of those on one run it was kind of a uh, uncharacteristic for whitewater to be i guess in a sense forced to go to the air to win but they certainly succeeded at it yeah and and credit to them the lance leipold and the coaching staff for figuring out uh, late in the second quarter and at halftime, the adjustments they needed to make, I think on both sides of the ball, you know, Brian Borland's defense was able to to get pressure 
obviously with the seven sacks on uh, on Linfield in the second half, and the offense figured out. You know, there, there's there's your identity, and, and the Whitewater identity for a long time has been to to basically just line up and run. You know, inside zone, outside zone, stretch plays, and just have that one main back. Let that offensive line do work. And, uh, you know, occasionally they'll they'll do eye backs or something with a fullback involved. But basically they're just running it down other teams throats. And there were times over the, their run of dominance. Remember, they went to seven straight stag bowls before they missed the postseason last year. Um, there were times over that run of dominance where they wouldn't blow teams out early, but they would wear them down over the course of the game. And, and big credit to them, I think, for figuring out that against Linfield this wasn't a team that they were going to wear down doing what they always do and they, they had to figure out a way to put some points on the board you know Pat you mentioned the the running game uh, they only averaged four yards a carry on Saturday and that was with that 49 yard Jordan Ratliff run factored in so much much less than uh, than four yards a carry on the uh, on the other several runs that they had they, they figured out that they had to throw the ball and and when they did uh, Jay Kumaro was the guy who uh, who emerged as the big playmaker. Justin Howard had seven catches as well, but it was Kumaro who had the seven catches, 149 yards, three touchdowns, and averaging uh, 21 yards a catch on those. And uh, I think Whitewater, obviously they, they felt like they found a quarterback earlier this season, but this may be the real coming out party as far as passing is concerned for Maverick. Well, and yeah, I think one of the things, one of the minor knocks on Barrett over the last three or four weeks was that, um, you know, they weren't, uh, the, he was completing passes. He was efficient, but they weren't necessarily uh, big chunks of yardage moving the ball downfield. They were talking about uh, seven or eight uh, yards per attempt. Um, you know, on, on Saturday, it's actually not a whole lot more than that, but you're playing against Linfield. Obviously it's a much better defensive team than playing against uh, somebody like St. Norbert or Wisconsin river falls. So, um, you know, the fact that it was 275 yards over 36 attempts over 26 completions, uh, is more impressive than it would be earlier in the season. Um, and for, for Kumaro, it's, I'm sure whitewater fans have to be happy to see that he's, uh, you know, obviously at seven catches, 149 yards, three touchdowns, which they pretty much all needed. Um, you know, looks a hundred percent after he got his bell rung earlier in the season, I believe against Wisconsin stout and then missed the rest of that game and had a couple of uh, down games after that. He's certainly clicking right now. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think you come into the season, the, the known name or the known commodity in the whitewater passing game was Tyler Huber. And now uh, with Kumaro uh, emerging, you know, and, and uh, Barrett being able to, to hit passes in big chunks now we we go further down the line. Obviously, they have a huge, huge game coming up this week. And if they win that one and they play in the stag, well, that'll be an even bigger game. Uh, but but now they have an offense that we can spend a little bit of time talking about on the podcast for so long this season. We've only talked about their defense. And, uh, you know, we, we've mentioned the offense, but there hasn't been any um, any reason to get excited about that offense. And, and I think we saw that, uh, you know, from about that midway through the second quarter on on Saturday against Linfield and, and, you know, for Linfield, it's just another depressing end to a season where they had high hopes. 
for for Linfield, it was interesting. Uh, and I, if for Whitewater, I wonder if I would be concerned about pass defense. Obviously, the uh, you know the the guys up front got the job done. We've mentioned the eight sacks a couple times. And, you know, Linfield without one of its top receivers after Poppin got hurt in the Hampton Sydney game, and still had two guys who average who had uh, over a hundred yards receiving. Uh, Evan Peterson, who had uh, 163 yards on six catches. Brian Balziger at 136 on 11. Um, when Yoder was able to throw uh, and had some time to do so, he was uh, he was clearly able to hit on some big plays. Yeah, and, and those big plays, you know, came mostly in, in the first half when they, when they got comfortable. But there was a point in, in this game in the fourth quarter where where Linfield is trailing and, and they're driving and uh, and and Yoder is leading them down the field. And then, uh, and then, you know, they get to the uh, Whitewater 37-yard line with about six minutes left in the game. Yoder's has completed a 15-yard pass and a 10-yard pass. And, and uh, you know, Linfield's thinking maybe they're rolling there. And then a couple of incomplete passes and a couple of big Whitewater sacks, uh, one by Kyle Wismer. And, uh, and, and that, that really, you know, put the clamps on, uh, on, on Linfield's drive. And, and, I you know, you mentioned the, the injuries. They also... Uh, lost uh, Josh Hill uh, during the game, the, the star running back. They had defensive line injuries throughout the course of the season, going back to their their star pass rusher, Brennan Hyland, was hurt early in the season. Tyler Steele was hurt at the end of the regular season. Uh, and, and I think uh, Linfield just sort of, you know, they're, they're, the top programs in D3 are obviously really deep programs, and you practice, you know, two and three guys deep, and you're able to plug people in. But the further you get when you when you matching when somebody can match your talent level, I, I know that Linfield obviously was in this game and was competitive with Whitewater the whole time, but I think they really missed their big stars at, at some point and they just couldn't. You know, the injuries got to them eventually. Yeah, Hill didn't even make the trip because of his injury. Um, you you mentioned the uh, the sequence with the two incomplete passes and the back to back sacks at about the six minute mark. Uh, Whitewater took a timeout on defense right before that. I would love to have known what was uh, what was said in that defensive huddle because they certainly came out and uh, uh, righted those temporary wrongs and uh, and slammed the door shut on Linfield. Is uh, Linfield's season done at eleven and one? Whitewater improves to thirteen and zero. Whitewater will face Mary Harden Baylor, um, which you know Keith is. A, a a matchup which we've talked about quite a bit, but hasn't actually been played since uh, 2008. It's actually been a while since these two teams have actually met. Yeah, they at one point scheduled each other in the regular season, and that was when I guess Whitewater had had been to a couple of Stag Bowls, and Mary Harden Baylor uh, had obviously been to one Stag Bowl, but was trying to get back. And uh, those teams, you know, they're both kind of stuck on the, the D3 island. Um, the white Mary Harden Baylor stuck on the island geographically, and, and Whitewater, I, I think, more competitively, they were stuck on an island that time where it was hard to get get teams to schedule them. And so those two teams played, and they had uh, one you know epic game down in Belton and one not so epic regular season game. But then they met uh, in the uh, in the postseason those years. So they played a seven three game, a forty one fourteen game, and then a sixteen to seven game. And I remember talking to Justin. Beaver after after they uh, Whitewater won that stag bowl and they said you know they don't they don't get there or they're not able to beat Mountain Union if they hadn't had to go through a defense as tough as Mary Harden Baylor so these teams do have a a pretty big history uh, but it's but it's been a few years since they've played and and I think this will be you know I, I don't know if there if there are 
two two other programs besides Mount Union that have more uh, cash in, in in D three besides Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater, and and I think this will be uh, as good a matchup I, I think as you can hope for in the semifinal round. For Mary Harden Baylor, uh, they had to survive St. John Fisher and. Um... You know, uh, Mary Harden Baylor jumped out to a twelve nothing lead after the first quarter. St. John Fisher didn't go away, cut the lead to uh, one possession midway through the second half before uh, Mary Harden Baylor uh, switched quarterbacks. Uh, they went from Zach Anderson to Brian Gallagher. Uh, Gallagher and uh, got uh, threw a deep ball to Elijah Hudson, and then uh, later ran it in for a nine yard touchdown. And then they put the cap on it with a minute thirty seven to go. Um, Interesting in a couple ways. Keith, uh, first of all, of course, uh, Mary Harden-Baylor defense shut down the St. John Fisher running game, which is not particularly surprising because Mary Harden-Baylor has been uh, fairly good at that over the course of the uh, last few years. But St. John Fisher was able to throw for 411 yards on uh, on the crew. Yeah, and and there was, you know, I don't know how much of the game you got to peek in on, of course, because you were... Uh, I was busy. Col- color <laughs> for uh, for one of the different games. Uh, so I, so knowing that, of course, I tried to watch as much of it uh, as possible. And I didn't think St. John, John Fisher was was blown off the field in any way. You know, for the folks out there who are uh, you know either down on East football or, or big fans of of East Region teams, you know, St. John Fisher went out there and they they matched up well. They gave um, Mary Harden Baylor. They didn't give them trouble, but they didn't look like they didn't belong on the same field with them either. Uh, and, and the way they got, they hit some of their big plays, of course, were, uh, you know, there was one play that I noticed in the uh, in the first half of that game that turned into a big play for Fisher where um, Mary Harden-Baylor had a corner blitz and it, and it hit home and uh, the Mary Harden-Baylor defender misplays the ball and it turns into a big play for St. John Fisher. But I think also Fisher earned some of those plays through the air and they figured out pretty quickly in that game that they weren't going to be able to, to run the ball down their crew's throat. And that the best way for them to move the ball was to put it in Tyler Fenty's hands and let him find his, his playmakers. And on the Mary hard Baylor side, uh, really struggled on third down. And frankly, you know, the, this, uh, you know, when they, when you go and change quarterbacks in the middle of a national quarterfinal game, um, you know, I, I don't think I need to say anything more about that. Yeah. And you know, the, the stunning thing about it, I guess is, is that, up until Saturday, I think from a, from afar, and I don't know if people close to the program had had watched Zach Anderson struggle, but it certainly hadn't seemed to us, you know, that he, that he'd been struggling and that he'd be the, the type of quarterback that would need to be replaced at some point. Um, but but Gallagher came in, only needed to throw the ball uh, three times, hit two of those passes for seventy eight yards, big plays. You know what stood out to me from from that is uh, besides the fact that they they make the switch. Uh, which is not the first time this season that Mary Harden Baylor switched quarterbacks. They switched to Anderson uh, back in September, I believe. Yep. Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me is that uh, Elijah Hudson running the ball, 20 carries, only 2.4 yards per carry, uh, and you, you you feel St. John Fisher did a nice job shutting down the run, but Hudson uh, had four big catches in 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 the um, you know the passing game and that seventy yarder obviously from Gallagher that you mentioned ended up being a big play in that game but but Mary Harden Baylor hit a couple of big pass plays in this game when they needed needed them they also had a fifty three yard uh, catch from Eric Nelson and uh, you know St John Fisher got them out of the out of what they do a little bit but Mary Harden Baylor was resilient 
And uh, I, I don't think they were really ever in trouble uh, in this game. There, you mentioned the point where it was 31-23, Pat. But uh, after scoring early on a safety and on an interception return, they were pretty much in control most of the way. You mentioned uh, looking for signs of Zach Anderson struggling. Uh, when I was there in September for the Wesley game, I was actually specifically watching for that, um, knowing that he was, you know, a guy in a big situation against a, you know, a highly ranked team uh, with a crowd that, you know, has a, easily had the ability to overamp things behind him. Guy making his first uh, career start for Mary Harden Baylor. I was, I had my eye out for those things, and I didn't really see them then, and that was. You know, probably the biggest game that they've played up until uh, up until this point. They've had a relatively easy run in the playoffs, obviously before Saturday, um, and hadn't been challenged too much, especially not at home. Um, and to be honest with you, having the game at home on Saturday against Whitewater is a big deal for them as well. Because the one thing I thought about Mary Harden Baylor over the course of the season after seeing them in September was. I didn't really see how a team was going to be able to was going to be able to beat them at home. Nobody on their schedule certainly was going to be able to beat them at home, um, because of the you know because of the extra juice you get from playing in a brand new stadium. Obviously, they're not drawing nine thousand uh, fans in the playoffs, and and nobody is um, you know for various reasons, which we could probably talk for fifteen minutes about if we were interested ourselves. But long story short, some of those things have gone away, and now the biggest uh, opponent of the season comes in this week. Yeah, and, and Whitewater is a team that's used to playing in front of big crowds at Perkins Stadium, so I don't know how intimidated they'll be no matter what kind of number. No, no, um, no, no, no. And I'm not and I'm not really talking about an opponent being intimidated coming in. I'm just talking more about Mary Harden Baylor drawing some emotional support from uh from their crowd behind them. Sure, and I, and I think it'll be it's always good obviously to play at home in the playoffs and and the deeper you get into the D3 postseason, the longer the trips become. And, you know, some teams are used to traveling a little bit, but I think traveling uh, can be a little unnerving for, for some teams. I think it also can be can pull you together where you don't have anybody at home uh, on campus to worry about. You, you know, the coaches aren't worrying about what, what the kids are doing Thursday night or Friday night. They're, they're focused on the game because you're traveling and you're out of town. So I think sometimes being on the road can actually be a good thing. Uh, but if you get in an atmosphere where where the the and this isn't common in D3 where the home crowd is really a big factor, um, then, you know, it, it can be uh, it, it can be tough, I guess, for the for the visiting team. Uh, the You know, the weather was uh, was a factor in Mary Harden Baylor's game against St. John Fisher. And that's not something you expect when uh, when when the games are held in Texas, even if even if it's December in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Uh... 25 degrees, windy, cold, and um, I'm sure part of the reason why the crowd was under a thousand was because it was uh, pretty darn treacherous to travel in uh, that part of Texas over the weekend as well. Uh, fourth game, of course, uh, talk about cold. This was even colder. Uh, game time temperature minus four. Uh, wind chill would have to be somewhere in uh, the minus uh, 15, minus 20 range. Um, and North Central came out. Uh, after Bethel scored a, a field goal on its first drive, North Central pretty much had its way with uh, Bethel for almost the rest of the game and, and beat them 41-17. Uh, this is uh, one of those anomaly games, The uh, one of the last games played on grass, if uh, what was on uh, the Royal Stadium field could be uh termed grass uh there was not much of it and that was a that was a bit of a factor uh, players on both sides uh, had trouble with their footing 
there was a, uh, a Bethel player who had a wide open uh, lane for a first down and just completely slipped on some, you know, on the, uh, the lack of turf. Um, and, uh, North central, although maybe not as efficient as they have been on offense for most of the season, not as efficient as they were when I saw them play at Wisconsin lacrosse back in September, uh, still had a relatively easy time moving the ball. Uh, and so even if Spencer Stanek didn't complete 70% of his passes and wasn't the most efficient quarterback in division three, like he is for most of the regular season, he was still 15 of 27 for uh, 249 and two touchdowns. And Ryan Kent, the running back who ran for 257, I believe yards in the second round and four touchdowns ran for another four touchdowns on Saturday and Bethel without its starting quarterback just kind of struggled on offense for most of the afternoon. And it was uh, just a, a, a game in which, um, you know, we had a, a lot of, thoughts about what if the game had been played indoors? What if the game had been played on turf? Not that the Metrodome was available on Saturday uh, for anything other than a tractor pull. Um, they could have put the tractor pull actually at Bethel, come to think of it. Um, and then what if Bethel had had its starting quarterback who's a guy who you know is going to be in the All-American conversation when you and I have this All-American conversation over the next couple of weeks. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm not sure either of those really turns the, uh, turns the page for, for Bethel because North central is pretty good this year. Well, yeah. And the, the, the big difference is Eric Peterson doesn't play defense and, and right. Bethel had a, had a bunch of trouble stopping North central, uh, on Saturday. I thought there was a point in, in the game, uh, after the half, which, uh, which it was 21, three, uh, at the break. Uh, and Bethel is able to get on the board in the first five minutes uh, of the half, 12-yard uh, touchdown run by Jesse Fennell. Now they're at their uh, uh, 21-10, and you know Bethel is at a point where if they get a stop, they can they can you know get back in the game. And North Central puts together two uh, you know pretty quick touchdown drives, a three-play uh, short drive actually I think set up by a turnover, um, and, and Kent scored on a one-yard run. But the one I was thinking of was uh, was the one where they they just really quickly. Got right back on the board, and uh, Stanek hit that long pass to uh, to Chad O'Kane, and then all of a sudden it was you know you you, you looked and, and it was twenty one ten, then you turn around and it was thirty five ten, and North Central's back on top, and I think that's what makes them uh, dangerous is they can score in a hurry, and I, I want you to talk about what you saw I, I guess a little bit on Saturday with that North Central offense, and then we should spin it forward I think a little bit and say if Mount Union gave up fifty nine points. To Wesley, when they scored in a hurry, what if Mount Union doesn't have that 31-point cushion and North Central is scoring in a hurry the way Wesley did? Yep. Okay. Uh, so a couple of things about the beginning of that third quarter. Um, you know, Bethel was in position. Uh, they had the first uh, – they got the ball coming out of the locker room. Uh, and Bethel was uh, – uh, Keith had actually uh, run the ball inside to the red zone and then uh, had a uh, – lost the ball, fumbled it away. Um and uh, North Central uh, dodged a bullet kind of right out of the gate. Uh, Bethel did come back and score, uh, as you mentioned, to make it uh, to cut it uh, to cut it down. And then um, immediately following, there's a 76-yard kickoff return that takes it down to the eight-yard line. North Central scores. Uh, it actually took several plays later because of. Uh, uh, penalties and that sort of thing. But uh, North Central does go back up. It becomes a comfortable lead. And the things that North Central did on offense on Saturday, uh, you know, a couple of the things, I think part of the 15 for 27 is uh, 
it, part of it obviously is Bethel being a better defensive team than the, you know some of the teams that North Central faces over the course of a, of a regular season, the ins and outs of a conference schedule. But also, um, you know, uh, Stanek might have been uh, struggling with the touch on the ball a little bit, um, you know, with temperatures obviously well below freezing. Um, his receivers dropped a couple of easy balls. Uh, I think I counted probably three or four drops that uh, should have been uh, that pro- I think would have been caught uh, even if it were freezing rather than zero degrees Fahrenheit. <clears throat> um, and uh, you know the other thing about North Central is uh, for those who haven't seen them play this year, they like to they like to push the tempo. Uh, they tend to you know they they tend to go no huddle. They would like to uh, they like to really force things and uh, um, you know keep the defense from being able to uh, substitute and adjust and that sort of thing. And they did that. They did some of that on Saturday. They, they didn't do it the whole, uh, the whole way through because they had a comfortable lead, obviously, and uh, milking the clock was, uh, became more important at some point. Um, what's interesting to me, Keith is, um, you know, I've, you know, having seen Wesley last week, seeing North central this week and watching uh, the, uh, the replay of the, Wesley Mount Union game. I wonder if, uh, and I, I have uh, I have some doubts about whether North Central has the horses to do some of the things that Wesley was able to do to Mount Union. Uh, you know, uh, North Central has a couple of great receivers, uh, and I'm not, I don't think Peter Sorensen is gonna uh, is gonna match up with Caduso from Wesley in a foot race, and I'm not sure O'Kane is necessarily uh, capable of. Um, uh, you know, doing some of those things either. Uh, so that's the interesting question for me. I think that, um, obviously North central has a particularly efficient offense, a more efficient offense than Wesley, um, takes care of the football better. Uh, Stanek's only thrown one interception all year compared to 40 plus touchdowns, but I'm not sure if X's and O's wise or Jimmy's and Joe's wise, sorry for the cliche, if they match up with mountain union quite the same way in the perfect storm way that Wesley did. Well, uh... You know they, that you mentioned the turnovers, and I think if if the worst the the biggest way to lose at Mountain Union is to turn the ball over and, and fall behind early, and if North Central can avoid that, uh, you know that they may have a chance to put some points on the board and, and stay in this game. Uh, there's so much to talk about with the way those two teams match up, but but you mentioned one thing, and I want to I'm going to um, touch on it, and that is the the way the ball feels when it's cold out on it. your hands. I I, I don't blame a um a uh, receiver for dropping a pass every now and again in sub freezing weather uh wearing gloves obviously would be ideal a lot of players don't like to wear gloves and and don't no matter how cold it is but it feels like for someone who's never played the game the way that way a normal pass a normal pass would would just you know you feel it you catch it and, and it, it it doesn't feel like anything and on a cold day it feels like someone gave you the hardest high five they ever could like you ever slap slap hands with a kid and they wind up and, and they hit your hand real hard that's what it feels like when the ball hits your hand on a cold day and and i'm talking about cold days that i played in where it's probably 20 degrees out uh, these guys playing on saturday uh you know with sub zero temperatures or, or whatever it was in arden hills um i i don't blame them for dropping the ball and in the weather going forward we've seen it snow already in these these playoffs uh, in alliance the weather next saturday certainly be a factor uh, especially because both the teams uh, like to get up and down the field throwing the ball so we talked a little bit from my perspective about how uh, mountain union and north central might match up how about uh, from your take keith well i think one of the things we spend so much 
time talking about these two teams' offenses. And they both, they, you know, they, they both are going to have to play good defense on, on Saturday. Mountain Union's defense, I don't think, has the star power of some of the defenses of the past few years. There's no Charles Diesel. There's no Nick Driscoll. But there are players who, who are going to cause problems. And uh, I, on Saturday against Wesley, you saw Tom Lally. You saw Matt Fetchko in the backfield getting after Joe Callahan and being part of the reason he threw four interceptions. North Central has that, that great offensive line led by the uh, All-American tackle in, in Jace Werkheiser. So we'll see those two two guys, uh, maybe Lally and, and him, face off this week. And I think it, Mountain Union, remember uh, Vince Karras, longtime defensive coordinator. Mountain Union's gone from 4-2-5. They played 2-4-5. They, they line up three, three down linemen a couple times against Wesley. So they package-wise, they can throw it all at an offense and North Central, their offense can throw it all at a defense. They'll they'll run, you know, everything under the sun and they'll they'll run it quickly. So I think the that X's and O's matchup will be uh, will be pretty fun too. But we should also, I guess, remember that that this is gonna be North Central's first time uh, going to Alliance. I can't remember these these two teams ever playing before. I think there have been some times in the past where the brackets lined up where we thought they'd play and North Central would get uh, get beaten earlier in the playoffs than we expected, but this is going to be the first time, and the first time at Mountain Union uh, tends to be a, a pretty big deal. So half the battle for North Central is not getting psyched out and not falling behind early. Certainly, I would have to think that Wesley, uh, having been successful, you know, in as much as teams are successful against Mountain Union in the playoffs, having been successful and competitive with them in the past, had to help them on Saturday as they, uh, you know, tried to keep from imploding on themselves after going down thirty-one nothing. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly some of that where they, they, I mean, part of that is just the makeup of that team. They don't didn't even seem concerned about the score, and they were playing just as hard. They were playing harder, I think when they fell behind than they were in the first couple plays, the first two Mountain Union touchdowns were so easy. You just kind of wonder what Wesley was doing out there. And once Wesley got its feet under it, they were you know, clearly way behind. And uh, again, you know, we mentioned maybe they didn't, they felt like they didn't have anything to lose at that point. But I think also part of it is thinking, especially once they got a few points on the board is thinking, Hey, we, we can play with these guys. And uh, there, there's no reason why we can't come back and win this game. That's got to be part of the mindset when North Central goes out there. And, and you know, Coach Thorne can say that to them. But there's the only way, you know, the, those guys are have to really embrace it and believe it. And it has to happen, I think, in the first 5, 10, you know, 15 minutes of that game where North Central has a little bit of success or at least just doesn't have a, have a bunch of negative plays where they fall behind once they, they believe they can play with Mountain Union. And I would say from what I've seen, this North Central team can play with them, but but they got to believe it because Mountain Union jumps on teams every which way. And, and part of it is the, the, the aura of going to play against a team that always wins. Mountain Union is always confident, too. They, they, they don't ever get rattled. And, uh, you know, we just haven't seen too many teams. I mean, I think, I think they, they earn it. In, in every which way they're good. Um, you know, this particular team is the offensive line is outstanding. So Burke doesn't have to face a lot of pressure. There, there are certain things that the team does well um, that, that are earned. But I think a lot of it, too, for teams that have never played uh, there in Alliance is, is mystique in the idea that, oh, my gosh, we're going to play Mountain Union. And this game is so big and it is so big for, for North Central. But they have to have a little bit of success early to believe they can hang in it. 
I think some of that aura for one week, perhaps, do you think some of that goes away knowing that, uh, you know, North Central sees that Mountain Union gave up 59 points last week and maybe you get a little bit of extra confidence knowing that or thinking that Mountain Union is not as invincible as they have been in the past? Yeah, but but they, they, they've got to have some success early and, and, you know, the North Central defense is going to have to figure out a way to slow down um, pretty much everybody. Now, you know, we there are times this season where we wondered if Mountain Union was going to be able to surround Kevin Burke with enough playmakers. And now we can't stop, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about all the guys they have. They have, you know, they have Jack Nichols, who's, who's, you know, being kind of like the possession receiver, running underneath routes, the intermediate stuff, getting them big first downs. You got Sherman Mitchell, who's Sherman, Mitchell, Sherman Wilkinson, who's running straight down the field uh, for, for long bombs. And and you got Luke Meacham, the guy who's making the amazing the diving catches, the sideline catches. So they have three really talented receivers. They got um, B.J. Mitchell now coming out of the backfield, who's a shifty back. And I think that offensive line, we just haven't talked about them enough. You watch the game, and there are times when when Burke will take the snap um, from the shotgun and just plant his feet, look around, wait for a guy to come open and deliver a perfect throw. And the reason he can deliver a perfect throw is because nobody ever gets close to him. That's interesting because I did not get that impression from them uh, back in week nine against Heidelberg. Uh, You know, some of it could be Heidelberg having a lot more tape on Mountain Union to look at. you know, some of it could be you know, guys who, you know, a new offensive line playing in week, what was that, 14, right? Week 14 rather than week nine certainly is is a, capable of making adjustments and that sort of thing too. But I, I really thought that um, against Heidelberg, Burke was, uh, Burke was running around a lot. Burke was getting chased out of the pocket and having to make things happen with his legs. And that's going to be a, you know, big factor this week is whether, uh, North Central is able to get that pressure and is able to get it with just four down linemen or, or you know, not having to send a whole bunch of exotic blitzes because I think Burke is uh, is very capable at seeing where the blitz is coming from and taking advantage. I mean, he just makes smart decisions. If it's not there, he throws it away. If there's a blitz, he hits the hot read. Um, so they if they can get some pressure from their from their natural base sets they'll they'll be uh it'll be an interesting game and um i i'm excited for this one pat it, it occurred to me as you were talking that you've seen all four of these semifinal teams live this season some more than once so so you may have a you know a better sense for of these four teams you know i i don't i can't tell you who's going to win the stag bowl right now and i love that i think that's the most exciting thing we have going for us right now uh, well, yeah, having seen all four teams live, I can't tell you either. So it, it don't uh, don't feel bad. It doesn't help. Um, our other game uh, that's coming up on Saturday, the other national semifinal. The thing that I like, of course, is that this game is at 3.30 Eastern. You can watch them both in their entirety uh, live, uh, assuming that, you know, of course, that the Mountain Union North Central game doesn't go to some crazy amount of overtimes. But we've got uh, Whitewater heading down to Mary Harden Baylor. Oh, and yeah, and you can watch them on ESPN3. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Um, so there will be streaming video from both of those games this weekend, which will be great for uh, people who have been talking about that a little bit over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor hosting Whitewater. And, um, you know, with, with Mary Harden Baylor giving up as many passing yards as they did. On Saturday, Whitewater coming in, I think, with a better running game. But to be honest with you, the uh, you know the the defensive front for Mary Harden Baylor, I don't see it being 
any less challenging than it was for Wesley back at the beginning of the season. Not to say that, um, you know, Wesley would fare as poorly now with, you know, a, a young quarterback with more time under his legs, a different running back than they had then, uh, you know, a, some upheaval in the offensive line has settled down a little bit. Um, point being, I don't really want to draw kind of conclusions from that game, uh, how they played against Wesley, another quarterfinalist, but just knowing that they're capable of shutting down or slowing down a, an opposing team's run game uh, makes it interesting for me to see what Whitewater would be able to do against them. Yeah, you know, the key to this game, it's it's probably not very exciting, but uh, but Whitewater and, and Mary Harden Baylor don't necessarily have the, the star guys that, that some of their better teams have have had. There's nobody on the Mary Harden Baylor offense that that reminds you of Ladarrell Bailey. There's nobody on the on the Whitewater offense that that has the talent of Lavelle Coppage or Justin Beaver. So this is one of those games that'll probably be determined by by uh, the guys up front. You know how well the the Whitewater line blocks the Mary Harden Baylor defense. Those guys stand out as fast. Uh, they're they're you know the front. The, the defensive line uh, put a, puts a lot of pressure, at least, you know, at least the times I've had a chance to watch them, uh, gets in the backfield. A lot of tackles for losses. I think they have six guys uh, who had double-digit tackles for losses on the season. Uh, they, they certainly were, were, were getting after Tyler Fenty a bit on, uh, on Saturday. And, and it's a fast defense on the back end, so the, the pressure coupled with quarterback having to get it out you're going to end up, uh, you know, throwing some bad passes, having a chance to get the get them picked off. Mary Harden Baylor, you know, made a bunch of defensive plays uh, that that got the points uh, against St. John Fisher. Safety, the interception return for the touchdown, they returned a, a two point uh, conversion for for two points as well. So uh, that defense is fast, and, and Whitewater's offensive line got to be able to keep keep those guys off their quarterback and, uh, and, and, you know, impose their will on it. And I know it sounds really cliche, but that's what Whitewater does uh, in the running game. And if they're able to do that uh, and then, and then mix in the passes to Huber and Kumaro, they'll be, uh, they'll be successful offensively. It, it could be one of those games, Pat, though, you know, that that's just kind of ugly for a while and not, you know, might be a 10, three or 10, 10 at the half or 13, 10, or, you know, it could, it could be a grinder for a little while and then it, and then it gets really good in the fourth quarter that that would be the way i see that game going be more of a you know game that ends in the in the 20s and in in a lot of big hits and and uh you feel position and and you see maybe the other one turning into a shootout because of the, the high-powered offense two guys to watch for up front for the crew uh one of them is a guy you've probably heard of and he will uh you'll may see his name as the uh south region defensive player of the year at some point this week when we research release our all region teams uh silvio diaz a senior defensive lineman for uh the crew uh, the other guy is a freshman uh you may not know him quite as well but if you uh if you're uh, if you're a Wesley fan, or if you were at the Wesley Mary Harden Baylor game, you certainly know this guy. That's a freshman uh, on the other end of the line by the name of Tedrick Smith. He's a guy who's uh, got 16 tackles for loss, eight and a half sacks. It, you talk about the numbers defensively for this team, Keith. They've got um, they've got five guys who have more than a dozen tackles for loss each. Uh, they have three guys who have eight sacks or more. Um, you know, you talk about the cliche of somebody living in the opponent's backfield. You know, this is a team that has 49 sacks and 150 tackles for loss over the course of the season. And opponents are somewhat fortunate, I think, in my mind, to average 1.7 yards a carry against them. Yeah, I mean, they, they were pretty coming into the postseason. They were the best team in the country uh, against the run. 
and you put that with the Whitewater reputation of being able to run the ball, especially in the playoffs, and, and you set up an epic clash right there. I just feel like, you know, with the two defenses, uh, the quality uh, of Whitewater's defense and, and the way Mary Harden Baylor's defense has made teams one-dimensional by, for you know, snuffing the run game and then getting after uh, their the quarterback when, uh, when the team drops back to pass, I feel like this has the makings of a game that could be, you know, pretty exciting from a defensive standpoint, from someone, the standpoint of someone who likes to watch uh, good games in the trenches, but you may not see, uh, you know, too many big plays. You won't see the tempo that you'll see North Central try to operate with. It'll be uh, uh, quite a different game. You know, if we have to compare it to last year, it'll be more like the the St. Thomas Oshkosh semifinal maybe than the uh, than the other exciting semifinal that we had. But but you never know. I mean, I, it, it you know, it's probably the for the out from the outsider's point of view, uh, and I mean outside of our D three circle, you know, from people who, who are just casual followers, you, you figure that's the bigger matchup of the two because people aren't as familiar with North Central as they are with uh, with Mount Union, Whitewater, and Mary Harden Baylor. But but I think that may be the game that's uh, that's just sort of more of the, more of a slugfest than than high power shootout. I think we're going to have two great games on ESPN3 on Saturday for our Division Three football national semifinals. Uh, they will be re-aired on ESPNU during during the week. I believe it's on Wednesday, probably during the day. Check local listings, set your DVRs uh, if you do not have ESPN3 or if you just want to you know, watch them again. Uh, as, we get, uh, as you get ready for Stag Bowl 41, which comes up a week from Friday, December 20th, 7 p.m. kickoff in uh, Salem Stadium in Salem, Virginia. But uh, before we talk a little bit more about um, you know what's coming up that week and some of the things that are coming up between now and then, I wanted to take a quick visit to the coaching carousel and talk about one guy who um, has done uh, an incredible job at his, uh, at his institution over the course of the past 15 years. Even though you look at Jeff Ramsey at Oberlin and his numbers at 42 and 108 don't really stick out, uh, considering that he inherited a team that had gone three and eighty-five, three and eighty-five in the nine years before he took over, um, and the fact that he continues to do it with you know forty guys on the roster, um, it, it, uh, this guy deserves more credit than I think he's gotten so far. And uh, it was a pretty good, a pretty good run for him at Oberlin. Yeah, and and you know the main thing that stands out to me was that that, that there was a time. When uh, when Swarthmore shut their program down, and uh, and Oberlin was on the brink of doing the same, and he saved that program. That's that's you know, fifteen years, I guess, almost of of guys who've who've been able to say they're they played football for the uh, for the yeomen that uh, you got that, that you know wouldn't wouldn't have been able to do so otherwise, and and. You know, if nothing else, whether the winning record, uh, the one loss record is what, what he wanted it to be, you know, saving a program uh, is is a pretty significant thing. And I'm sure there are a lot of other people uh, who had a hand in that. But uh, but leading the way for that is, is pretty impressive. Oberlin is uh, putting some money into its facilities over the offseason. I believe they're rebuilding their stadium between now and next year. Uh, whoever the new coach is, uh, hopefully will have uh, some support and maybe be able to get more than 50 guys out in August. Uh, that That's going to be, I think, what the next step would have to be for Oberlin. Uh, Keith, so we have all region teams coming out over the course of the next couple of days. Uh, voting uh, wrapped up on Sunday night. Uh, it takes us a couple days to actually compile and copy names into the news releases and make sure that everybody's spelled right because we care about those things here. Um, 
So we uh, expect to see them, I think, on Tuesday is probably a fair estimation for that. Um, you know, we'll have continue to have Road to Salem features again this week. National semifinals on Saturday. Around the Nation podcast coming up for you next Monday. And then, of course, a big week in Salem, Virginia with the Gillardi Trophy Ceremony. Uh, the team's practice team luncheon on Thursday, uh, tailgating all day Friday because of this Friday game, uh, Friday night game. I love the night games for that. Friday night isn't the best time to have it, but I'd rather have it Friday night than at 11 a.m. on Saturday morning. And then we have kickoff sometime shortly after 7 p.m. on Saturday in Salem, Friday in Salem. Friday it is. And that's, uh, the, the one thing that's really interesting about that, I think for D3 teams is, uh, that's a six-day turnaround, and pretty much, I, I it may have been a couple of Thursday games this year and a couple of Friday games, but there's never really a case uh, in, in Division Three where you you play Saturday and then you have to turn around uh, really quickly and, and play. And when you add in the fact that the teams are traveling, sometimes they're on finals week. Uh, it it can be it's a real challenging time, but. The two teams that are in it, you know, wouldn't trade places with anybody else. So, uh, and I think whatever happens on Saturday, we're going to have two great, great teams in the Stag Bowl, whether it's, you know, North Central versus Mary Harden Baylor or another Mountain Union Whitewater or, or some different combination. It'll be, uh, It'll be a good stag bowl and, and a good Final Four weekend. I encourage you to make the trip. Uh, you may have to start making your plans. Now, if you're a neutral fan of Division Three football, come to Salem. You will find many other neutral fans of Division Three football. They will not all be wearing purple uh, or red, which is a possibility, but they will not all be wearing uh, Mountain Union or Whitewater or uh, Mary Harden Baylor or North Central colors. You will find people representing their little corner of Division Three at the Stag Bowl in Salem as well. So I definitely encourage you to come on down. Uh, I'd also like to thank the folks at Salem, Virginia's Championship City, for sponsoring, presenting our D3Football.com all-region team this year as well. So the uh, it is uh, a good time to be down there. Um, and I'm not sure I can say much more about it. This will be Stag. This will be 15 for me, and I know it's more Stag Bowls for you. Yeah, I've been uh, going every year since 1997, and, and uh, obviously it, it, I, I love it. I wouldn't keep going back, but uh, you know, for me, it's part of the the December holiday season. You know, you you, you go stag bowl, you turn around. There's Christmas, and then New Year's right after that. And it's it's part it's you know, it's part of the fabric of uh, of of my life. But obviously, the the Salem area has embraced it too. And I think uh, I'm not the only person who's made it a yearly thing. And uh, it's the, the seeing the same faces year after year down there does make it kind of fun as well. The D3Football.com All-American team will be announced as part of our two-hour pregame show heading up to that 7 p.m. Friday kickoff. We encourage you to stick with us and listen to Stag Bowl 41 as uh, Keith and I and Frank Rossi call the game. Normally, we would take this time to make a veiled reference about the uh, lack of Division Three knowledge of the ESPN announcers, but in this case, it's actually a former uh, Division Three wide receiver, a former D3Football.com broadcaster calling the game on ESPNU uh, in Joe Davis, who has been a, a rising star for them over the course of the uh, past couple years. So it, it's great that there will be a guy calling the Stag Bowl who has heard of Division Three before, you know, the couple weeks before he was assigned. Yeah, and, and has played. And I know there's been people in the past who, who you know, do their best to do the game justice. But it, there's certainly nothing like somebody who's uh, who would be paying attention if he wasn't calling the game. And, and 
And uh, I don't know if our references have been all that veiled uh, over the years, but, but now that we're we're getting what we want, we should we're very appreciative of it. And uh, and uh, I think you know we're we're setting up for what should be a pretty uh, pretty cool final two weeks here of the season. And uh, you know, not every season ends on an exciting note, but I think we're in good shape for that uh, this year. We're to get you out of here in just under an hour. If this was an hour conference call, you'd have about 22 seconds back. That's the Around the Nation podcast. He's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman. Stick with us all week. Plenty more D3 to come.